This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild podcast is made possible by support from our partner, the Calliopeia Foundation. Calliopeia honors all life as sacred and works to heal today's issues at their root causes. Calliopeia partners with many initiatives around a common vision for a future built with love, reverence, and responsibility for our shared home. We are so grateful for Calliopeia's generous support to bring so many inspiring projects to life and for making our show possible every week. Welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. And reconciling does not mean to arrive at consensus. Reconciling does not mean that you all believe the same thing about who is to blame for the circumstances that we're in. Reconciling is some kind of practice in person and in policy to pay attention to the society that's pulling itself apart. And that is painful. And the imperative in it, certainly in the context of Ireland, has been to be in deep relationship with people who represent the thing that you consider to be the opposite of your point of view. And that um, is costly, it's painful, it might cause you to be called a traitor by some of your own, and you will find yourself in all kinds of unexpected circumstances where you find empathy and sympathy for people coming from different points of view than you. Today we are speaking with Padraig Otwama. Padraig is a poet and theologian. His work centers around themes of language, religion, conflict, and art. Working fluently on the page and with groups of people, Padraig is a skilled speaker, teacher, and group worker. His work has won acclaim in circles of poetry, politics, religion, psychotherapy, and conflict analysis. Well, Padraig, thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm truly honored to be talking to you and really fascinated to see where our conversation takes us. Thanks, Ayana. I'm interested too. <laughs> so I want to start off by just speaking to this topic that it feels like it's too easy to fit, quote, the troubles within a timeline of events that took place over a 30-year period, or to just relegate it as a sectarian strife between Catholics and Protestants. In doing so, we fail to acknowledge that British and Irish identity have been brushing up against each other for centuries prior. So I'd love to use this opportunity not only to bring this history into our conversation, but to recognize generational trauma. So what is the visibility of trauma in Ireland, and how are people adapting in the wake of the Troubles? Well, you're very correct to recognize that the the Troubles, kind of 68 to 98, is only the latest iteration in a complicated history regarding the presence of British power and British people on the island of Ireland. 
Um, you can go back 700 years really and see the beginning of colonial initiatives from that period of time that have severely impacted the question about what independence means in Ireland, what sovereignty means in Ireland, and what it means for a people to have their own governments, language, polity. Um, for me, the very first impact of trauma is um, the fact that the Irish language was removed from the Irish people in the 1800s. That was done through a mixture of policy as well as then the impact of a famine. And again, that famine was also a policy-led famine. It wasn't a potato famine. There was plenty of food leaving the country, far, far more food than was needed to feed us. But still, many of the people who were loading food onto ships died as they were walking home. A million died in three years and a million left. Population went from nine million in 1845 down to, let me see, four million in 1880. So that leaves a long scar in the question of what independence looks like and the question of what, about what Irishness looks like. Uh, so that is a deep trauma, not one that I would see necessarily being manifest in human action in the here and now, but certainly in the question about what would our present look like had the past been more virtuous in terms of those who had claimed power over the island of Ireland in this project called the United Kingdom. The Act of Union was set up in 1801, not with any sense of democratic voting from Irish people, which I should hasten to add. So that is one of the main areas of trauma that I see. Um, in, a more, in more recent times, you see some sectarian responses through the IRA, through various paramilitary organizations towards Britishness um, on the island of Ireland. Ireland was partitioned in about 1921, and you can see the deep impact of that um, manifesting itself throughout this last century in 1968 to 1998. Um, various, um, I suppose, Irish paramilitary organizations that saw that they had a just cause in waging a violent conflict against British targets. And then all kinds of targets, Irish, British, <laughs> and people who worked for government authorities, people who didn't work for any kind of government authority and lost their lives during that time, were murdered during that time. You can see, once again, the impact of trauma manifesting itself in the continuing diminishment of British-Irish relations through the Brexit project. The question as to how Brexit is impacting the island of Ireland is evidenced really through um, protests on the borders and um, recognising that the border is receiving far too much attention. Um, sovereignty about the question of the border was given to the people of Ireland for the island of Ireland by the 1998 peace agreement. And so that has really diminished in the last few years with all these civic questions through the British system as they've tried to make sense about what Brexit means for the island of Britain. And then many people seem to have forgotten that um, Britain continues to have sovereignty and to have uh, jurisdiction over Northern Ireland. And so therefore, um, Northern Ireland has been once again affected by processes decided on the island of Britain. And that, that is complicated because so much of what our peace has come to mean has come to mean something really rich and powerful from the generosity of people of Ireland and people of Britain. And there has been an extraordinary advance in civic relations in the last 20 years, but those have been severely tested in the last couple of years through Brexit. Thank you so much for sharing with us these issues that are facing Ireland, because I think especially in the United States and Canada, this is not something that we hear nearly enough about or are aware about. Okay. So I really appreciate hearing from you. And mm -hmm. at the beginning of your response, you just touched on the language of 
Ireland, and I'd be remiss if I didn't take this opportunity to discuss linguistic colonization with you. I'd love to invite you to speak more about the term Northern Ireland and the ways in which the language we've so readily adapted is marginal in its nature. And then I'm also thinking back to a passage I read in your book, In the Shelter, Finding Home in the World, where you reflect on the Irish language's connection to landscape, how, quote, there is no nation without a language, end quote. And similarly, quote, land without a language is a land without a soul, end quote. So I'd really love to ask you about the history of the Irish language and the ways in which it has been systematically erased and discredited. Mm. So Tirgan Tanga Tirgan Anam is the Shanok of the proverb, the old saying that you just quoted there, a land without a language is a land without a soul. I mean, I think the integrity of every language um, is deeply linked to the place where that language evolved. Uh, the English is an extraordinary language and I, I love speaking English. And it is a beautiful language to reflect on how it has become a global language, how a language that grew up in the beautiful, verdant um, hills and fields of England and the extraordinary culture of England, how that language, um, through the curiosity and then the abuses of power, of empire, um, has gone far and wide and picked up all these other, other languages and words into it. For instance, the word taboo, I believe, might come from one of the islands of the Pacific. I think it might be Samoan or Tongan, but it came into English through. Um, so English is an extraordinary language populated by many other languages. Uh, the Irish language is beautiful. It um, corresponds very much to the landscape. And um, depending as to what dialect of Irish you're speaking, you can often hear the softness or the harshness of landscape um, through that language. Irish is a very concrete language and so regularly makes reference to the contours of hills and mountains and fields or the body. While my Irish is not brilliant, I um, have a deep connection with it. I think most things that I say, I tend to think through the Irish language. One of the impacts of um, the colonial project on the island of Ireland was that there began to be this introduction of a hierarchy of access to employment through if you spoke English and were speaking English. And then with the impact of the famine, when the population was reduced by two million during the famine and then continued to become less than half of what it had been, people flocked to the urban centres. Cities grew enormously. Dublin, the population of the island of Ireland in 1845 was about nine million, but there was only 200,000 in the Dublin area. So for the main city, that's a very small population near the city. At the moment, for instance, the population is about seven million and the population in Dublin is 1.2 million, I believe. And so that is uh, a huge impact in terms of uh, urban centres, Cork, Galway and Belfast being some other big cities then. So uh, with, the, with the flooding of people towards urban centres, um, the English language became more and more important. And then there was some measures, there were some measures to criminalise the usage of the Irish language also. And so to and then to introduce um, names for places, so places in Dublin that are known as Dunlera or in Cork Cove or called Kingstown and Queenstown. Um, calling something, something that people locally don't call it is an extraordinary act of invasion. A linguistic colonization is what I've always called it. For, that, for people to have to learn a second language in order to be able to deal adequately in their own country is a fascinating way. You, you make people feel inadequate in speaking about questions of power in their own place. 
where they have to learn a second language in order to be able to do so. I'm all for learning second and third languages, but not as a way of making people feel unfluent in circumstances to do with their own agency individually as well as collectively. So uh, when the Irish, when Ireland was partitioned in 1921, the Republic of Ireland, as it became known, established a constitution, a bilingual constitution in both English and Irish. And so in the Republic of Ireland, Irish is um, protected. You have to study it in school unless you've um, worked hard to get an exemption. You can't get into university without having passed exams in English, Irish and another European language. And so um, language is a very important thing here. And yet to have to learn language, most people learn Irish as their second language, to have to learn the language of your locality um, as a mandatory subject in the school can cause all kinds of resentments, unfortunately, rather than it being a breathing language. For many people, they do love it. I have always loved the Irish language. But then, unfortunately, for many people also, they might feel like it was just a language that wasn't taught well in school or the significance of it wasn't taught. So therefore, people haven't practiced their own fluency in it. Hmm. Well, speaking of colonization, I would really like to further this conversation into the cost of empire, this reenactment of colonial empire and how we live within colonial empire. And to speak of colonization in regards to Ireland, but in doing so with the understanding and the framework of the United States as a settler colony would seem to complicate my own understanding a bit. So I'm wondering if you can begin by describing what it means to live within colonial empire in Ireland and how this history is continuously unfolding into the present. Few enough people these days would call Ireland a, a colonial empire. I suppose I use the, the lens of um, empire to look at the impact of Britishness on Ireland. But people of British identity have been here for so many years now that I think it is an ungenerous and inaccurate term to use for, I suppose, the fifth of the population on the whole island of Ireland who would claim British heritage. Um, that would certainly feel like a um, an ungenerous lens. Um, people have been here for so long that we are all part of each other now. We are all wrapped with each other. We can't undo the past and we need to find ways in which we can reflect on the blames that we have towards each other, the deep pains that we have towards each other, and then practice some kind of virtue in finding a way to acknowledge, finding a way to let pain be recognized and memorialized, as well as then finding a way within which that can impact our present with each other. When I think of the project of empire, I think of a whole the, all of the layers that are part of the project of empire. There are the decision makers, which isn't English people or Scottish people or British people. It's a small amount of people who made huge decisions that impacted the world. Those were already the ruling classes, um, entitled people with large swathes of land who were happy to um, keep people in their own country in indentured service, never mind people in other countries. And so I, I see really that the project of empire is part of a manifestation of a project of power and abusive negative power, selective power, that requires the majority to be subjugated at the hands of the small entitled minority. Then I see another layer of empire is that through the story of Ireland, for instance, Ireland certainly has suffered an enormous amount However, when Irish people went to what is now called the United States 
Um, lots of Irish people were involved in defending the idea of the um, slavery project. So many Irish people who had been treated so poorly through the colonial project at home seemed to think that they had gotten a step up on a ladder of um, security once they got to the United States. And while they might have been the bottom of the white ladder, they were nonetheless white. And so Frederick Douglass has an extraordinary quote in one of his books where he reflects on the fact that the Irish who've suffered so much have not allowed that suffering to inform them and to inform our ethical attitudes toward those people who've been enslaved in the United States. So that is a warning from history that just because you've suffered, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to become virtuous. And I think Irish people love to reflect on the fact that we have suffered a lot, but often I think we enjoy forgetting that we have also been part of inflicting suffering through being secondary leaders of a colonial project when Irish people went overseas to Canada, to the United States, to Jamaica, to New Zealand, to Australia. Oh, Padraig, that is such a deep lesson that I think many of us in our ancestral lineages have yet to learn. And thank you for bringing that up. And now there's also this question here on the burden of shame whether it be ancestrally, individually, or, or nationally. So do you think it's possible that in reconciling these painful histories and shadows of shame, that we can break the supposed circularity of time and repetition of history? Well, that's going to be a slow project. I mean, you hear lots of people these days say, oh, you know, I don't think I'm racist because I don't use particular terms. And that's Okay, fine. It's it's great that a person isn't using particular terms, but any white person is going to benefit from centuries and centuries of white privilege at the expense of people of color. And so not using racist language uh, might be a great step one, but really there's, you know, there's a million steps to be taken. So we shouldn't congratulate ourselves for taking step one. There are shaming things to look at in our past. Um, shame has been a term that has gathered a lot of negativity over the last while. And I am not entirely sure what to do with that because I know that so certain forms of shame can be like living with a cancer of the soul, something that won't die and something that keeps you from experiencing flourishing. However, there are also certain forms of shame that can be educational. Shame when, when it comes to thinking about what is it that in my family line that we have done to other people in order to better ourselves at the expense of other people. I'm not sure that shame is a bad response to looking at some of the stories of our past. Mm. I really resonate with that, that I don't think it's necessary to run away from shame, although I know that it has gotten a bad rap and people feel that shaming mm. people or feeling shame isn't productive in our growth. But I disagree with that. I think that there are shameful things that us humans have done, and we need to sit with that in order to grow and learn and to really feel it and embody it so we hopefully won't repeat it. And I'm really happy you brought that up. So, um, Yeah, I mean, the shame can be educational. I mean, right. anything can be terribly negative or wonderfully positive or uncomfortably informative. And so, in a sense, it might be that shame is amoral. And the question is, is what are we going to do with shame? If we deny the kind of things that cause us shame, well, then we might deny the possibility of the practice of accountability or reparation. Mm -hmm. And there are serious things that we need to be called to in terms of paying attention 
to the here and now and to the privileges that some enjoy and the continued debts that other people are born into. Mm -hmm. I absolutely agree. Now, I know that you are stepping down as the leader of the Koremili this month, but I'm hoping you don't mind me asking some questions that reflect on your time there. So for our audience, oh, I'll... Oh, good. Okay. And for our audience, I'll just preface that Koremili is a community center that, quote, believes that people can learn to live and work well together, end quote. And it's also, yeah. quote, Northern Ireland's oldest peace and reconciliation group. And Ireland's oldest peace and reconciliation group. Okay. From, the, from all of Ireland, not just Good. in the north. <laughs> okay, thank you for the um, thank you for that. Now, I also learned that the founder of Corrymeely, Ray Davy, was held as a prisoner of war in Dresden during World War II, and that Corrymeely very much grew out of the inhumanity Ray witnessed. So, I'd love if you could share a little bit more about Corrymeely and the existential imperative of reconciliation and how our humanity can perhaps be most active amidst times of deep inhumanity. Yeah. So, yeah, Ray Davey was um, born in Belfast, I think, in 1915. So he was born before this project called Northern Ireland was imagined. So Ireland was partitioned in uh, 1921. And... Um, the North or what some people call Northern Ireland or the six counties or the occupied six counties, depending as to your politics, depends as to what validation you give this new jurisdiction that was created. Um, anyway, that was created for, to the joy of some and to the um, sadness of others. And really um, the most recent iteration of the question of um, violence on the island of Ireland has come as a result of that partition. So Ray became ordained and then became a volunteer chaplain with the British services in World War II. And he was captured in North Africa and brought throughout a variety of prisoner of war camps, some in North Africa, then through Italy, and then finally outside Dresden. And he was there when Dresden was firebombed. The prisoner of war camp was far enough away from the city of Dresden that the prisoner of war camp wasn't affected by that firebombing, but he certainly witnessed it. And he saw that his liberation came at the expense of the annihilation of many. And he returned back to Belfast and uh, in about 1945, a man of the age of 30. And that was a complicated thing to come back, being liberated by the annihilation of many. And Northern Ireland wasn't even 25 years old by that stage. Partition had happened in 21, so he got back in 45. And you could see really that the, the deep divisions sown by any kind of partition were seeking to manifest themselves in some kind of civic action. And there's always going to be the threat that that civic action is going to turn violent. And so he began to work with students. He became the chaplain of Queen's University in Belfast. He began to work with students to say, let's come together in groups of diverse people to talk and argue it out, not for the aim of consensus, but for the aim of relationship across division." And so for 20 years, really, he brought students um, from all kinds of disciplines towards each other. They took trips back to Germany, took trips to other parts of Europe that were trying to pay attention to how the hell did we let ourselves get into this? How did the churches turn their eyes away from what was so obviously happening in terms of the anti-Semitism that was so rife across Europe? And um, so then in 65, he heard of a plot of land on the very north coast of Ireland coming up for sale and he had been chaplain for 20 years. He was a charismatic um, man and he had a whole bunch of students and a whole bunch of adults in the city, all part of the ecumenical movement. And together they fundraised and purchased this piece of land. 
every little kind of plot of six fields in Ireland is called a townland and all those townlands have a name. And so they found out that the name of this plot of land that they purchased that had an old house in it, the name is Corrymeela, which is an old, old Irish word. Somebody naive told them that it meant Hill of Harmony. And so they took that as a lovely sign for the Corrymeela community to begin. Um, about 10 years later, after which time the Troubles had already, the latest iteration of the Troubles had broken out. Troubles broke out in about 68. Um, people had been murdered. Terrible, terrible things had happened. So in about 1975, an actual etymologist of Old Irish said, well, the real meaning of Cornmilla is unclear, but it's definitely not Hill of Harmony. It's probably something closer to Lumpy Crossing Place, by which stage there'd been 10 years of the attempt at being a reconciliation community. And they thought Lumpy Crossing Place is a far more accurate term for this attempt, this essay to be a community in reconciliation and reconciling towards each other. And um, reconciling does not mean to arrive at consensus. Reconciling does not mean that you all believe the same thing about who is to blame for the circumstances that we're in. Reconciling is some kind of practice in person and in policy to pay attention to the society that's pulling itself apart. And that is painful. And the imperative in it, certainly in the context of Ireland, has been to be in deep relationship with people who represent the thing that you consider to be the opposite of your point of view. And that um, is costly. It's painful. It might cause you to be called a traitor by some of your own. And you will find yourself in all kinds of unexpected circumstances where you find empathy and sympathy for people coming from different points of view than you. And that has been a mandatory thing, really, for us in the question of what reconciliation means between Britishness and Irishness on the island of Ireland. For 700 years, the question of Britishness has impacted life here linguistically, in power, in land distribution, in questions to do with the famine, in questions to do with sovereignty, in questions to do with power. All of these areas have been impacted enormously. That is a long-term relationship. We are never going to move away from the fact that to be Irish is going to definitely require navigation and hopefully generous navigation with the question of the British impact on Ireland. And there are so many things about Britain to be celebrated, rich, rich culture, rich arts, rich, extraordinary contributions to the human community through the British project. And for us in Ireland, part of the question is, is to work alongside those who are British and to look at the ways in which we can celebrate shared culture, we can celebrate different culture, we can um, find ways to mark deep pain, find ways to lament and protest very seriously the things that have been denied and then find a way to say, but we are still with each other and we will need to be with each other. It is impossible for people to simply leave. We can't undo the past, so we need to find a way to practice something called um, society with each other in the present and find ways in which all of that can be to our mutual flourishing and, and beneficial um, co-living together.
I think about the notion of marginalization as a power structure and how in response to ever-present marginalization that is sustained by structures and systems, it's then our responsibility to curate spaces of belonging. So what is the foundation of practicing inclusion? And then perhaps more specifically, what is the function of storytelling in curating these spaces and social movements? All of these things are practices that are never finished. We do need to find ways to support each other in belonging with each other. Sometimes belonging is created by people who've been through a similar experience, and it's a very powerful experience. But belonging can also be practiced together in a positive way by people who have very little in common. How can we find a way where people who have very little in common can also belong with each other? Because if we think belonging can only happen when we have a shared experience or a shared identity, well, then very quickly we begin to measure what those borders of belonging are, those boundaries of belonging are, we might feel the need to protect the boundaries. And that, in the Irish context, has not been positive. So we need to find ways within which we can trouble the idea of belonging and look to the ethics of belonging. Certain belongings will always feel natural and fluent and indigenous to us. And that's a wonderful way to practice what um, some kind of human community can look like. But I think that needs to also be, in the Irish context, that needs to be practiced outside the areas where it feels natural and fluent also to discover in somebody who might seem like the other the possibility of flourishing relationship also um, story doesn't just have to be shared story we can thoroughly enjoy and learn from a story that feels utterly foreign to us the idea that story is only based on common shared experiences i think has a certain idolatry of common ground in it. And I am interested in the kind of stories and belonging that can flourish when common ground does not seem apparent. Um, I'm interested in ways within which difference and unsameness can be seen like an invitation rather than a threat, because uh, otherwise all kinds of sectarianisms can begin. Cecilia Clegg and Joe Lichty put together a book called Moving Beyond Sectarianism, and they define uh, sectarianism as belonging gone bad. And I love how they define that because it, it recognizes that belonging is a really powerful force, but even something so powerful can turn rotten when it necessarily requires an enemy because then it'll look for an enemy. And if there isn't an enemy to be found, it'll create an enemy. And so suddenly even small differences become the the reason why a certain form of belonging is based on the marginalization of others. Marginalization for me is always a power structure. I am relatively uninterested in hearing sob stories about somebody who's been marginalized because that has a way of making them seem pathologized or criminalized or medicalized even. I'm much more interested in thinking who's benefiting from marginalization. Some kind of central power is benefiting from this. And so for me, marginalization always needs to be a question back to the center of power um, and needs to open us up to the question about who is doing this and who is benefiting from it at the expense of others. Oh, Padraig, there's so much there. Um, now, I've been thinking about memory, especially in relationship to brutality and conflict and I'm reminded of James Baldwin, who once wrote, quote, it takes strength to remember. It takes another kind of strength to forget. It takes a hero to do both. People who mm -hmm. remember court madness through pain, the pain of the perpetually reoccurring death of their innocence. People who forget court another kind of madness, 
the madness of the denial of pain and the hatred of innocence. And the world is mostly divided between madmen who remember and madmen who forget, end quote. And I'd really love to explore this passage with you in the context of your own experiences. On the one hand, I am discomforted by our propensity to forget and our inability to bear witness. Yet on the other hand, the power of painful memories, if it's not alchemized properly, is corrosive as well. So I'm wondering if you could speak to the function of memory in reconciliation work. Mm. Well, you've described it very well, Yana. Um, There is a need to have a powerful and creative and life-giving reckoning with the past, and that will need to incorporate all kinds of practices, lament, protest, uh, gathering, learning, openness to the new, openness to change, openness to grief, openness to permanent memorialization, and openness also to the possibility of some kind of civic generosity, even in the face of our past. And this is a difficult thing. It requires leadership. Um, And I don't just mean in terms of leadership from a figurehead who's elected. I mean leadership from within the community. And we need to find a way where plurals can coexist, where we aren't just saying, okay, we're all going to be part of a civic mass of forgiveness now. That's not possible. And um, human flourishing will need to have places of lament, places of grief, places of protest, places of compromise, places of learning, um, places of debate and places of difference and dialogue as well. All of these things are necessary in, in, in circumstances like Ireland, where there is so many different versions of the past that we can't agree on who upon whom the blame lies. Often we idolize the past in a way where we think that there can be certainty about the past. But the past is always plural and there's always different places where we can begin the question of blame. And blame can be equally spread in the context of the Irish-British relationship. You can look at all kinds of reasons why Irish people are to blame and all kinds of reasons why British people are to blame. But blame won't solve anything. It's an important question to land where you might apportion blame, but then there comes the civic question of, okay, and now what? Even if you believe that your group is less blameful than the other group, fine. Now what? What are we going to do? Are you just going to imagine that the other group is um, incapable of moral or civic action today? How can we coexist in a way that's flourishing and mutual? So all of these things are are vital for us um, to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. Oh, I hear you, Padraig. Now, I'd really love to candidly ask you about the language that comes from the earth. I feel very connected to this. and. I've read that you take qualms with the oversimplification and overt romanticization of the landscape and that it neglects the practicality of a place. And in a chapter you wrote titled The Place Between, in Timothy Carden's Neither Here Nor There, The Many Voices of Liminality, you talk about how landscapes can have rage or fury and they hold stories of everyday life. And I'd really love to open this up to you on the implications of language and our relationship with the natural world. And so perhaps our severance from the natural world is reflected in this obsession with reflecting the spiritual onto the landscape rather than the pragmatic. Well, so for me, the spiritual and the pragmatic are possibly both sides of the same thing. I always think that spiritual, and I remind myself that spiritual comes from the word spirare, um, meaning breath and that I am dead without breath. And so spiritual is an intensely bodily thing. And for me, that is where Celtic spirituality begins. I have um, sometimes found myself very frustrated 
when I read what people write about Celtic spirituality, it is the most airy-fairy, uh, disembodied, impractical, unincarnated language possible. It just seems misty. And um, I find that to be deeply boring and deeply denying of the linguistic tradition of Irish, which is so earthy and bodily. Um, the Irish language takes so many metaphors from actual carnal reality. Meatiness is so important. So uh, kind of a small story of my own rage was told in that chapter where I was once part of an event where somebody looked out over a valley in County Wicklow, which is just south of Dublin, and County Wicklow is called the Garden of Ireland. Its valleys are beautiful and filled with the most gorgeous heathers, moss green, purple, yellow, brown, stunning, stunning colours. It looks like a it looks like a beautiful Turner painting sometimes when you look at it. And somebody said, Oh God, you can just sense the spirituality from the landscape there. And I just thought, what kind of bullshit is this? People have to live in this valley and heather, while it's beautiful, is terrible for eating. What poor sheep cut their tongues under the thorns of heather. Heather in Irish is freach, which means um, rage or fury. And so there's somebody understood this linguistically that they called their surroundings, beautiful as they were, they called the plant rage. And so for me, finding a way to pay attention to the fact that all that thrives around us um, is also in conflict, that plants, that animals have had to fight for their own survival and to be close to nature is to be close to the question of survival. And survival can be cruel. Um, Annie Dillard writes about this really powerfully in Pilgrim at Tinker's Creek and other others of her works where she says, you know, people who talk about wanting to get close to nature don't seem to have spent too much time thinking about what that means. It is a demanding survival tactic and it requires an enormous amount from us. So spirituality that doesn't pay attention to the muscular, meaty ways in which we need to pay attention to our body, to our landscape, to the earth, to my mind, is spirituality that is not paying attention to the question of being alive. That was so beautifully spoken, Padraig, and I feel that, that the land holds many stories and representations, and it's not all just beautiful or lovely. You know, it does. It kind of strips no. It strips the depth from the land. It strips the stories. It mm. strips the identity of the land to just uh, oversimplify it like that, and I really love you speaking about that. Now, I have this question on my mind on the theologies of both joy and sorrow. And I, I haven't quite figured it out, but I'm thinking mm -hmm. also about the role of religion and, and how we can recognize the complacency of structures that have failed us, but still hold a deep sense of faith that extends beyond its failings. Mm. Say a bit more. Uh, I'm fascinated by what you're saying, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about what's um, in your mind about that. Yeah, well, I guess just well, I guess today I see a lot, especially in the United States, this agnostic or atheist movement. A lot of, I feel like people are being just so detached from religions of the past, feeling frustrated by what religions have done um, in within power structures and how they've failed us in the sense of uh, bringing peace or health to the land, health to humans. But at the same time, extent, I do see there's a deep disconnection when we 
live this type of postmodern secular life where we don't we don't hold spiritual values uh, within our lives, within our actions. And so there's really nothing to be accountable to, um, whether yeah. that's traditions, family, religion, uh, practices, lineages, uh, especially in America, this kind of homeland of orphans from other places. Mm. So yeah, I wonder as we're especially the young ones are stepping into this world where so many of these power structures and religious structures have failed us in many ways. But at the same time, how do we reconcile with that and hold ourselves within something beyond just a postmodern capitalistic framework? Well, I, I, I think the stories of the past are very important. It, it can seem to some like this is the age when people began to move away from religion and the the imagination, I think, immature imagination, is that moving away from religion, especially toxic religion, would be the thing that leads us towards virtue. But all you have to do is turn the clock back 100 years and look at the story of the eugenics movement in Australia um, to recognize that people have been thinking that they've been secular for a long time and been doing terrible things to each other. So um, there is no movement that can claim the corner on virtuous practice. So science alone will not save us. Um, because people thought that eugenics was science and that eugenics was a non-religious approach and that it was free from um, supremacy and was free from everything. It was just done for the benefit of humankind. And terrible things were done through eugenics, this idea of the science of better breeding. So people were um, sterilized because they were deemed to not be the kind of people who would give birth to virtuous children. Children were stolen from families and are forced into marriages to breed the so-called indigenous problem out of Australia. So there's all these ways within which war was being waged on people in the name of this scientific secular project. So I don't think there's anything alone that will save us. Um, religion has claimed for a long time that that might be the thing. And we know enough to say that religion has been extraordinarily beautiful and creative for so many endeavors and extraordinarily destructive in so many other endeavors. But um, science, too, has a lot of blood in its past, and we need to pay attention to that. The secular project, I think, is often misunderstood. Secular means to go into the world with your ideology, to take your ideology and to be in conversation with the world. Secular does not mean anti-religious or irreligious. Secular means to be in dialogue. So I consider myself to be a very secular person. I have the things, the ideologies, the hopes the faiths that I try to hold in myself, but I consider it to be a virtue and a demanding practice to be secular about those, to be in conversation with people in the world who think very differently and to ask, what does this mean now? Who benefits? Who From whom is this taken away? I know you've had John A. Powell on your program and he asks these um, beautiful questions, um, demanding questions. Who decides who wins, who loses? Those are three questions that he asks. And I think that's a secular question to ask when it comes to my ideology, uh, an ideology or spirituality that I might feel is very nurturing to me. Who decides who wins, who loses, who pays? These are serious questions to ask. And I think every worthwhile endeavor should be open to asking itself that. Snoopy has an extraordinary question in one of the um, cartoons. Um, Snoopy is sitting on top of his kennel typing and Charlie Brown comes along and says, I hear you're writing a book on theology. I hope you have a good title. And Snoopy looks up in his fairly pontifical way and says, I have the perfect title. And the title of his book of theology suddenly becomes etched in typeface in the sky. And it is, have you ever considered that you might be wrong? 
And I think there is such brilliance in that. The scientific project, I'm from a family of scientists, and the scientific project is not frightened of asking itself that and thrives really on asking itself regularly, are we wrong? Are we limited? Have we reached the final answer? Is there another answer beyond the answer that can improve us? But science has shown in the past that it can be devastating when it chooses to end itself in a certain place. And religion also has shown itself in its past that it too can be devastating and a power of terror when it um, doesn't continue to ask itself that it itself might be the place where repentance is needed rather than projecting repentance onto other people. I'm glad that you made the mention that science also has blood on its hands or something like that because I do see um, when people move away from religion and kind of bring that fanatical uh, feeling into science then and then science is the one true god or science is in a sense yes it's about questioning but it's not to be questioned as the authority and i think that's also extremely limiting and i've really been questioning science so much these days as much as i i've studied science and i've it's taught me so much and really helped me identify what i care about in a lot of ways but i i see this this savior mentality with science especially with the environmental movement and climate emergency uh, and the Anthropocene extinction. There's, there's this energy that somehow science will save us. Science has the answers. And, and the scientists, in a sense, have become to me like the priest when the Bible was in Latin and the lay people couldn't read that language. It's like a similar thing. Science has this language. Uh, the papers are so in- inaccessible to most people. And then there's this uh, power structure that comes into play, let alone the fact that so much science is being bought out by big corporations and so on and so forth. And then this intense need to collect data, collect data, collect data in order to prove something. When I feel like Mm. so much of what is being proven, we already know because we can see it observationally. We know it intuitionally. We don't need to have data for 30 years on how you know, something is being poisoned, it's being poisoned, period. And we should look at that and put our energy into stopping the poisoning. So I I have so many feelings around science, not that I think it should be thrown out, but not given the amount of, uh, I don't know, I I don't think it should be given the amount of power that it's given. And and I would say science and technology are one and the same for me with that, um, with that feeling. I mean, they are all practices of power, and power is amoral. I mean, when you look at the word physics, physis meaning nature from Greek, physics is is profoundly interested in in the nature of things, the the laws of the universe. And I mean, I think that's such a worthy and brilliant endeavor. And the physicists that I can understand, which are very few, it's the the ones who do great work of translating themselves to make themselves intelligible to someone like me. they are filled with the mystery of what they don't know and filled with the question of the unknowability of certain things and the question of saying we need to continue to pay attention to how we do these questions needs to be guided by the best of virtue that we can practice in the here and now. And I think that's a very humble practice. And I'm so moved by listening to physicists that I know who um, practice that in a way to widen wonder and to open up the question of what it means to be human with each other in the here and now.
I'd love to be able to close on this question around hunger and spiritual decay. And I'm trying to find this connection that I'm feeling in my mind about them both. I There's this one part of me that's really wondering about the hunger of our time and how hunger can propel creativity and foster community. And within mm. that community, I'm thinking about peace and and how we can be in that place moving forward in this hunger. And there's a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. that says, quote, a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual decay, end quote. So I'm curious about the notion of uncovering our spiritual decay. And then more specifically, what does this practice of peace look like during this time? You know, how is building peace in our communities imperative alongside this said uncovering and where does our hunger fit in to propel us into this work well um there's so much in that question it really interests me to to imagine what a response to your question about what current hungers might be i think one current hunger is a desire for accountability and there is also a current hunger in a desire for purity Accountability is something that really interests me. Purity is something that um, frightens me somewhat because I've seen so many attempts over centuries to find a way of purity. And we can look back on some of those um, centuries old attempts for purity and see the violences that they inflicted. We hope that the attempts for purity now might be less violent, but nonetheless, we have shown ourselves over and over how quickly desires for purity turn sectarian. Accountability, I think we are filled in an era where there is a desire to reckon with the past and that the past is um, truly present in the here and now. I was in England a few weeks ago and I mentioned something about the partition of Ireland and somebody said to me, oh, for God's sake, you're going way into the past now, aren't you dragging that up? And they had no idea. It seems like that that very week I'd gotten a uh, a green card to say that um, so that I can drive my car across the border if Brexit happens. So the past is not the past for us in Ireland. The past is very present. We have two jurisdictions in a place where not everybody wants there to be two jurisdictions. And so the the privilege of being able to say, oh God, that's way in the past, seemed to me to be lacking in accountability of paying attention to the history of a nation that hadn't paid attention to its history. So I think that there is a desire for accountability in the here and now, um, accountability of the impact of the powers of the past on the here and now, and the privileges that benefit some at the expense of many are being called into question today. And I think that is a profound thing to practice. Um, certainly in the English-Irish question, I find myself regularly wanting to hold things up regarding the question of the impact of Britishness. Um, but then I look at myself as a cisgendered, able-bodied, white man and grand i'm gay and so i've suffered personally on that level but on so many levels i am filled with the inheritances of privilege um, at the expense of others and so there's a question for accountability for me in the here and now in terms of what how when do i think that my voice is worthy of being heard and when do i just need to shut the hell up oh padraig this has been so expansive for me and i know for those who will be listening soon and i just want to open up 
the conversation to anything that you want to mention that maybe hasn't been covered or any last thoughts that you're having at this time that you feel is important to share with us? A small story. I was in Australia a couple of weeks ago and um, I was visiting with a friend of mine. I was his best man when he got married and he has a, a teenage son, 16. And we got chatting, the son and I, over a meal one evening, a family meal. And he was telling me about how he's been drawn to poetry through learning in school. And I find myself over and over realizing that for me, a life without poetry would, would feel a little bit like death. For me, poetry is um, so physical and so much linked to me, to the question of breathing. A day without poetry for me is a day when I don't feel like I have um, been in my body. And uh, it is um, certainly lower than the questions of, you know, justice and uh, eating and drinking. But it's certainly high up there in terms of daily priorities for me. And I find myself thinking that poetry is not just for people who feel like they know lots about poetry. Poetry is for those of us who are experiencing the desire to have some kind of language that makes some kind of sense for us in the here and now. I'm talking to the 16-year-old for whom he was discovering or learning in school about 18th century poets, and he was finding so much richness in them. And I found it really moving that he knew stuff about old poets that I know nothing about. And he was quoting to me, um, as we discussed over dinner, these powerful lines from poetry that were making sense to him as a 16-year-old in Melbourne in Australia. And that was really moving to witness the ongoing way within which old texts can nurture us. And I find myself wanting to prescribe poetry to everybody. <laughs> oh, I love that, Padraig. And it really makes me feel strongly about the importance of reincorporating poetic language and nonlinear vocabulary mm. in relationship to our well-being, our expression, and perhaps even in our conflict resolution. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, I, I find some, some broadcasting and, and then some um, journalism seems to imagine that its consumers are stupid. And so they need uh, attention grabbing clickbait headlines that minimalize a subtlety. And the imagination seems to be, oh, people won't get it if we're subtle. And I find that imagination that you, the readers or listeners of media are stupid to be a patronizing imagination. People are so rich and people have so much subtlety. We all cope with our own lives, with our own friendship circles, with our families, and often there's difficulty in those. So we're perfectly capable of navigating subtle experiences of being human with each other. And I find that poetry has a respect for the readers of poetry because poetry doesn't always say, oh, here's how to read me. Here's how to understand me. Poetry is filled, I hope, with the kind of imagination that says, look, it's possible to take plural meanings from this, or at least the poetry that I turn to is filled with the possibility of saying this can mean many things all at once. And it might mean something that was never imagined by the poet. And I think any art worth its salt is not telling you how it should be interpreted, but it is there as a small act of survival and remembrance in the hope that it might create an echo in someone else to help them pay attention to the circumstances of their life too. Oh my goodness, that was so beautiful. And thank you for raising that awareness around the way that we communicate with others, especially around topics that are so deeply important and meaningful and, and necessary to talk about these times when we see social media and mainstream media, yeah, patronize 
us and kind of think of us us as consumers that can't understand, that don't have the time, um, that kind of idea that we, our attention spans can't handle anything more than a few seconds. And mm. we're seeing social media cut, mm. cut, 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 even the, the length of videos. And I think if we yeah. keep believing in that and then perpetuating that even w- amongst each other in the way that we share our ideas and our feelings, it is really a huge disservice to our capacity for creativity and understanding. And I think this clickbait culture is so tied in with the resource extraction culture of just quickly get in, get out, don't really go into the depth. And then we can't make our way out if we don't trust each other enough and give each other the opportunities to be in wonder, to be in question, and to not feel like we have to move through things so quickly. And like it's another thought I've been having a lot about of just slowing down because the clickbait culture, it's about fast, fast, fast. If you can clickbait something or if you can click something quickly, then that means you can click a lot of things quickly. But we don't need a lot. Yeah. I don't think we need as much as as being thrown at us all the time. And I actually think it's to our disadvantage. So there's so much there. And I, I loved that story and how you worded that so beautifully about poetry and makes me want to pick up a book, a, mm-hmm. a, a poetry book today and just be able to sit with it. Well, you should. I can recommend a few. Um, first, Joy Harjo's 2015 book, um, Conflict Resolution for Holy Beings. And then Richard Blanco's book from earlier on this year, How to Love a Country. Um, Marie Howe's book, um, uh, Magdalene, uh, is an extraordinary book. Faisal Mohuyadeen's book, Displaced Children of Displaced Children. Uh, Dana Smith's book, um, Don't Call Us Dead. <laughs> Those are just some recommendations, but they're all extraordinary. Thank you for those. Well, Padraig, thank you again for this conversation. I hope we get to have a second one at some point in the Mm. future because it felt so good to speak with you. And yeah, I hope that we cross paths in the future. Be wonderful. Okay, all the very best. You too, Padraig. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of For the Wild podcast. The music you heard today was from Pia, and our theme music is from the late and great Kate Wolf. I'd like to give a shout out to our team, podcast production and editing Andrew Stores, writing and lead research Francesca Glassbell, outreach and research Aidan McRae and Hannah Wilton, podcast music Carter Lou McElroy, digital community organizing Aaron Wise and Susan Dollywall. Graphic and web design, Erica Ekram and Melanie Younger with Partnerships and Media. I've been too long away from this wild open sky on the country trails and wine.